Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the podcast as we continue in our study in Romans. We're in week two as we... uh... So anyway, we started last week by giving an opening for what the book of Romans is. And we talked a long time about some of the different perspectives on how to read Romans and how it's been uh, read and understood and how some of the new scholarship is coming out. So we we flushed all that out. Anything you need to know about how to read Romans started last week. Uh, but we're going to get into the text a little bit today. Romans is oftentimes thought to be like the key New Testament book outside of the Gospels. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a very important, popular book. What do you think? Is it like, is this the fifth gospel? Is it like the fifth no, needle? But no, Revelation gospel? is, so we know that. So. <laughs> and only wise people get PhDs yeah. in that. Right? Yeah, I mean, the book of Revelation is clearly the most important text in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, Romans <laughs> is right near the top. So yeah, so Romans is a, it's very significant. The thing that we want to make note about the book of Romans, though, is that you hear pastors that preach through the New Testament or that preach through a book of the Bible. They will do 18 months in the book Mm -hmm. of Romans. Yeah. I know a pastor who has been preaching for 38 years and he's preaching every book of the Bible except one or two yet. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, that's it. The problem with that is the average person goes to church once every once or twice every four weeks. So while you're preaching through Romans in the course of even if it's 12 months, Mm -hmm. uh, they don't know what you said last week because they weren't there. And so they're not following the systematic thing. You've lost them. And then what happens, though, is the first eight chapters are deep theology. Mm-hmm. Nine, 10, and 11 are significant. I mean, you can call them theological if you not if you want, but we're going to have a specific week, uh, week discussing them on who is Israel and what are the promises of Israel and how is that fulfilled. And then you get to 12 through 15. And 12 through 15 are just a treasure map, mm-hmm. especially 12 and 13. They're just phenomenal. Um, but these pastors that preach to the Bible in the course of a year or 18 months, where they get tired. The congregation wants them to move on on to something else. And then you skip over or don't spend as much time on the most important stuff because you think that you had to pontificate on the theology of reformed theology of the book of Romans. Like, seriously, it's it's so tragic the way we do it. But nonetheless, Romans 12, 13, 14, 15 are just really, really significant. We really want to focus on those chapters. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's start with some of the basics of Romans. Uh, give a little bit of an introduction here. So most scholars would say that Romans was written definitely by Paul. Like no one disagrees yeah. in terms of there's no in terms of with some of Paul's 13 letters, there's some that are disputed and then undisputed. Like right. everyone agrees, yep, Paul wrote this. Yes, no question at all. And so probably sometime in the mid 50s. Probably in the mid 50s, 50s, 56 yeah. to 58 is typically uh-huh. the understanding. Usually it's believed that he wrote it from Corinth. Mm-hmm. So if you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, Paul goes on three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And in those missionary journeys, he travels as far as modern-day Greece, all the way down to Corinth. And then he kind of goes back up to Philippi and Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, then Philippi, back over to the coast of um, what we call modern-day Turkey, which is the west coast of um, Asia Minor, maybe visiting churches like Ephesus and some of those. And then on his way to Jerusalem, he's kind of making this circuit sometimes going into the inland of modern-day Turkey, sometimes not. The point of that is he's not been to Rome. He has not been to the West. And if you read Mm -hmm. Romans 15, the end of Romans 15, he's, hey, here are my plans. I know I haven't been out there. I plan on coming to visit you, coming to visit you soon, but I'm going to go to Jerusalem first, and then I'll make my way out there. And what we find out happens, by the way, is he doesn't get out there quickly because he gets imprisoned in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And he knew it was going to happen. 
uh, when he knew that when he got to Jerusalem, was, something bad was going to happen. But he spends two years, according to the book of Acts, in Caesarea in a prison before he finally appeals to Caesar. And he ends up going to Rome as a prisoner, which is not the way he anticipated getting there. But yeah. So was there something specific that caused, uh, like caused Paul to write in addition to his travel plans? Yes, and I think we mentioned this uh, briefly last week, but let's talk about it a little bit more. The letters of the New Testament, we call them occasional documents. They're mm -hmm. written on an occasion because something is going on. Paul doesn't sit down going, you know, let me write my theology out. So you have a systematic theology on the nature mm -hmm. of God, the nature of salvation, or whatever it might be. He's responding to an issue in the churches. And so in order to understand these letters, we need to know what's going on. And what the background is. Now, the reality is we don't always know what's mm -hmm. going on. And we have to kind of figure it out. Um, and it's important to remember that you're we're reading a two-way conversation that Paul's responding to something that he heard about from them, or hey, this is going on with you, and here's my take. And sometimes they're corresponding back to Paul, and then Paul's responding back to them again. And we don't know all that. The, the way I usually like to illustrate it is you're listening to a phone conversation. Yeah with the person in your room, but you mm -hmm. don't know who the person on the other end is, what they're, what they're saying. Exactly. You know what they're saying because the person in the room that's next to you is you, you get their reactions. Oh yeah. I'll be there on Thursday. Oh, they're talking about that lunch situation that they had set up last mm -hmm. week. They're going to go to lunch on Thursday at noon. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you knew about it. Cause you had some prior existing knowledge. The point of that though, is that sometimes we don't know all of that. And therefore we kind of have to be a little bit cautious. And we'll get to some examples of that, like in second Thessalonians and things of that mm -hmm. nature also. Mm -hmm. So, so in light of that, what do we think the situation might be as we are, there's a lot of inference on our end as the readers, you know, thousands of years later, what, what do we think is happening in Rome in the mid to late fifties? Yeah. So, so we know that in the year 49 AD, actually technically it's the late forties. We don't know exactly what year the emperor Claudius expels the Jews from Rome. And I mentioned this the last time, but mm -hmm. uh, it says in a Romanist, I think it's Tacitus who says, that because there was an instigation of, the, of a man named Crestus, mm -hmm. which everyone seems to believe is just a misspelling of the name Christ, Christus. And so uh, this is mentioned, by the way, in Acts chapter 18, that Aquila and Priscilla uh, were from Rome because Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. So it's even mentioned in the book of Acts. Actually, real quick with that, though, Christ or Christos, that is a title, not necessarily a name, but it became a title for Jesus, yes. right? It became a name for Jesus. Yeah, I'm sorry. Big, yeah. yeah. It became yes. a name for Jesus, even though it's actually a title, it's Messiah. It means the, the Christ one. of the Messiah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what we think is happening there is we think that the Christian message has made it to Rome prior to this, and it's starting to go through the Jewish communities. And the Jewish communities are, well, some are saying Jesus is the Messiah. Some are saying Jesus is not the Messiah. So that, there's a debate. But the ones who are saying Jesus is the Messiah were probably taking that gospel then to the Gentiles then, mm -hmm. kind of like what Paul's doing. And Peter's probably doing also. And we don't know if Peter's involved in this or not, right? Because at some point in time, Peter gets to Rome. All right. So if they're taking the gospel of the Gentiles, then you have the same kind of conflict that you find in Paul uh, in much of his letters, that they're, they're debating the Jews against the Jews, whether we should accept Gentiles in or not. And finally, Claudius says, you know what? Just get the Jews out of here. It, it does show you the attitude towards Jews, mm -hmm. even, in the, even at the Roman era. Uh, there was anti-Semitism back then also. Now, the, these Jews are allowed to return, as we mentioned last time, when Nero becomes the emperor in the year 54. It's, it's just one of the things that you do. You let everybody come back, and then you make friends with everybody because they, oh, I like the new emperor because he let us return to our home. And 
Exiled. Same thing if, if someone was exiled, they would allow them to exactly. return as An well. exiled prisoner mm-hmm. would get back home. Mm-hmm. For example, we think if John was exiled to mm-hmm. Patmos, if that's what happened, then probably when the emperor Domitian came into power, he could have returned back to Ephesus if he was exiled to Patmos. Uh, so things like that. So you allow these guys to return. Now these Jews come back. So we know that Aquila and Priscilla, by the way, they go back. Eventually they go back to Rome. And now you have another conflict, and that is the Gentile Christians have kind of been practicing the things that they've been practicing for five or six or seven years while the Jews were out of town. And now the Jews want to come in and say, no, you got to do things this way. And you've got this conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you maybe can add this to the equation. You don't hear this very often. It seems that when Paul, for example, would go around the, the Roman world and he'd go into a city like um, Corinth or one of these cities, we know that he always went to the synagogues first, mm-hmm. preached to the Jews first, and then afterward he would go to the Gentiles. Well, then Paul would leave. And before he would leave, now sometimes he's forced to leave, like Thessalonica. He only stays three weeks and then he's forced to leave. But before he leaves, he establishes elders mm-hmm. in each of the churches. Well, he says in First Timothy, an elder can't be a new convert. Mm-hmm. So you're suspecting that the Gentile converts probably don't qualify for being elders unless they were God-fearers, meaning they were Gentiles who were attending the Jewish synagogues and had been attending the synagogues for some period of time. The point being is the Jews were probably put in charge in most of these area churches because they knew the Old Testament. They, this is what it is all about. And so if these Jews are coming back into Rome, and I'm guessing here now, right? And they're, hey, we're supposed to be in charge. You have this conflict. Uh, you have an ethnic conflict, you have a cultural conflict, and you have a theological conflict. What do we do with the Gentiles? So this is the background, and it's specifically described in Romans 14 and 15. So Rome, people think that Romans 14 and 15 are kind of like an add-on, where Paul talks about the weak and the strong. Mm-hmm. And Scott McKnight, I think, which we hope to have on our podcast here pretty soon, does an excellent job of saying, no, this is the point of the letter. Mm. The weak are Jewish Christians who are saying that Gentiles need to be circumcised and following the Jewish law in order to be saved, in order to be welcomed into the Christian community. The strong were saying, no, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. We don't need to follow the food laws. Christ accepts us the way we accept us, the way the way we are. Uh, by faith, we receive the Spirit of God by faith, as we mentioned before. And so Paul describes them as weak and strong. I think this distinction is correct. I think that's what's going on. And he's writing with that conflict in mind. So again, the weaker Jewish believers, the stronger Gentile believers, the strong could include some Jews, Jewish believers also. There might have been some Jewish believers going, I'm on this, I'm on these guys' side. Uh, with with this, there's oftentimes a connection between Romans and Galatians. It uses a lot yes. of similar language about righteousness and justification, this sort of thing. We oftentimes with Galatians think it's the same thing. It's the letter to teach us how to get right with God. But there is not the same, but a similar issue happening there in which there's the question of how Jewish does a Gentile convert need to be in order right. to follow the Jewish Messiah. So that that's probably more of the link of what's happening between those two letters, right? The, yes. the ethnic yeah. issue. Yes, exactly. So, and and the issue boils down to. I hope I stated it well enough earlier, but it boils down to who can we eat with, mm-hmm. what foods can we eat, and the implication of that. I believe that the church was gathering together on Sundays to take communion, and communion was a meal, mm-hmm. and so it's now all of a sudden like you know we can't eat with this person, and we can't eat in their home, or they can't eat with us, and we can't eat those foods. There's significant issues going on. And we'll address that when we get there. Mm-hmm. Because one of the interesting things about it is that Paul 
doesn't say, I mean, he, he clearly falls on the side of the strong, which you kind of can figure out just by he says strong and weak, mm-hmm. which I think for us, strong and weak, like weak has a pejorative element to it. It's, it's a put down. I don't know that it was, would have been received as much that way because it's one of those, I'm weak because the in my culture, I'm simply not a person of honor. Mm-hmm. So they kind of took that as, that's just the title that you give to these kind of people. Whereas we look at it and go, wow, weak is really a put down. You're stepping on these people. Nonetheless, uh, what's interesting is Paul's clearly on the side of the strong because he's like, yeah, welcome the Gentiles in. But he doesn't ever tell the, those who are on the weak side, hey, guys, you're wrong and get with it. Mm-hmm. He simply says, you know, you guys should handle each other this way. You should do this and you should do that. It's really significant when you read Romans 14 and 15 and go, what is Paul advising the weak to do? And what's he advising the strong to do? So would we say then that Paul's reason for writing Romans was dealing with this conflict? Like that's yes. where we would land. Yeah, again, so this is exactly what Scott McKnight says. And I think he's totally correct that this conflict was the issue and the impetus between uh, why he wrote the book. You, I think you mentioned this last week, by the way. We often say, oh, Romans 1 through 11 or Romans 1 through 8 is a theology. Mm-hmm. And then the ethics are Romans 12 through 15. Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, you cannot divide the theology and the ethics. They simply go together and, and you can't separate them. You can't do that with Ephesians. You can't do that with Romans. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do because Romans 12 verse 1 is this great therefore. And so, oh, he's yep. taking the theology of what he said in the first 11 chapters. And now now do this. Don't be conformed to the world, but deny yourself. And um, no, it's, it's not that simple. I think that, mm-hmm. the, that these two are interwoven. All right. So Romans definitely centers on the gospel, yes. right? the good news of Jesus. Yes. In fact, it opens this way. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to do this in 1 Corinthians more, more so, but when you're reading, you need to pay attention to the introductions because the introductions have embedded in it what's going to come out later mm-hmm. on in the letters. It always does that. Does it that way. So let's look at the first four verses of Romans. Romans 1, 1 through 4. If you want to read them, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's a wonderful, wow, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's so loaded right there. So first thing he says is, the gospel is about Jesus, it's set apart for the gospel of God, which he proclaimed beforehand concerning his son. There mm-hmm. you go, verse three. It's about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. But notice that the gospel was presented in the Old Testament yes. through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, it's about the son who was resurrected. So the, mm-hmm. the resurrection central. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit, who was declared the son of God with power by the re- resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's about the gospel and the gospel's just wrapped up in this Jesus guy and his resurrection and in the coming and presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And even right there, I, I know a misconception is that the gospel is something that like Jesus did. Like it's like you read the Old Testament and it's like void of gospel, but now we have the good news because Jesus is here. And and when you look at the what the gospel is, yeah, the, the content of the gospel is what you find in the Jesus event, but the, the content of the gospel only makes sense in light of the context of the gospel, which is the Old Testament. So in here, obviously, Paul is referring back to David, you know, and, and the promises of the prophets. 
Galatians 3, you have God preaching the gospel to Abraham, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, and that's Genesis 12. That's early on in the Old Testament story. Right. So we don't want to have the, the wrong idea that the gospel is merely this Jesus thing that parachuted in to Matthew 1, and that's when this thing started. Right. And we, I think we have to cover this in our series on the gospel, Mark. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or say it again, that Jesus Christ is the king of mm -hmm. God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. And that God has established his kingdom in Christ, is continuing to establish it through the power of the Holy Spirit, and will, in the end of the day, climatically consummate that kingdom in Jerusalem. That's the gospel. And that gospel was announced back to Abraham. It was it's the garden fulfilled. The Old Testament is reflecting on this. This is the gospel. And this brings us back to Romans. So if you go to Romans 12 through 15, it's not an argument about individual salvation, as we mm -hmm. typically read Romans and the Romans Road. But the question is about the inclusion of the Gentiles, which this is what the strong believe. The strong are saying, oh, yeah, they're included by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law. The weak were saying, no, they have to do the works of the law, which, as mm -hmm. we described last week, are circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath keeping. And that's what the weak are saying. No, they have to do these things. They have to become Jewish. And so the question is, how does one become a member of the kingdom of God or a member of God's family? And, and this is what the issue is. And this is the gospel. So in a sense, the gospel, like you said, it's, it's not the, the good news is not that I get to go to heaven when I die, which that's the way it's popularly presented. It's, it's what I get out of it, right? It's the gospel is about Jesus as Lord. <laughs> and yeah. the, the first effects that we see out of this is that God is forming a new kind of community. Yes. And I like the way you just said that a new kind of community. So you could argue the theology of Romans and of much of the New Testament and that the community that God's establishing, the argument there is, is of Jew and Gentile, which is especially mm -hmm. in Ephesians. He's made the two into one. Mm -hmm. So it's this multicultural community composed of Jews and Gentiles. Obviously, the book of Revelation says, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, all together, worshiping together. This, this is what God's establishing, which is really ironic when you look at the American church then, because mm -hmm. we're so segregated. Mm -hmm. For Paul and Jesus, however, this community manifests itself in love for one another. This is the key aspect of who this community is. That's why, obviously, we see this in John 13. They'll know you, you are my disciples if you love one another. But you see this in the book of Romans. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul's going to say. So for Paul, then, his argument is, well, the strong are not superior just because they've got the right theology. They're simply saying, the gospel has incorporated Gentile believers into this one people of God, and, and therefore that you're right because they're being incorporated through faith. Whereas the weak are saying, no, remember, it's Abraham's descendants are among the Gentiles, and, and they need to be circumcised and follow these things in order to be included in the kingdom. So when we went through the gospels, we talked a lot about how um, the gospels are a political documents. We, in mm -hmm. our popular, you know, Western evangelical church, we oftentimes think that Jesus isn't speaking politically. We we hear G phrases like Jesus as Lord, and we just think of that theologically. Yeah. But that's a, like those are different statements that happen there, and, and we just miss a lot of the political aspect of what we read in the New Testament. Especially, we've talked about the Gospels, but then even in Romans, right? It's, yes, it's not just about how do I get right with God. Just other things that are happening in there. Yes, and in fact, ironically, people go to Romans thirteen, which we're mm -hmm. going to talk about it at some length. To say, oh, the Romans even says that there's Christianity in your faith, but then you have to submit to all your governing authorities. And we're going to talk about that at some length later on. So I'll save that for now.
And the answer is that's not what's going on. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Mm-hmm. It's an emphatic proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. One of the scholars that I think I have found recently, and I've come to have great respect for this guy, uh, Richard Horsley says this. He says, when Jewish writings from the Psalms to the Apocalypse of the Roman period spoke of the justice of God, they were not primarily concerned with spiritual questions of an individual's right standing before God, but with the end of an unjust social order and the hoped-for vindication of the innocent among their enemies. Uh, it's really, really mm-hmm. political. He goes on to add this. He says this. Paul called himself apostle to the peoples. He never used the singular ethnos. The ta, mm-hmm. ta ethne is the plural. Mm-hmm. He never used the ta ethnos to refer to an individual. The translation Gentile is misleading because it implies a cohesive ethnic identity held by individuals. But no one in Paul's world thought of himself as a Gentile. Nation, which is what we often translate the word Gentile as nation, nation is also inappropriate because since nation states refer to our states are a modern development. He says, when Paul spoke of securing the obedience of the ethne, Romans 1.5, he would have been heard as declaring that his Lord, not Caesar, was the rightful ruler of the peoples of the earth. So largely what Horsley is challenging the church to do is to not think what we would call anachronistically when we read Romans, meaning don't think of a don't you think of a term like Gentile or nations and think mm-hmm. modern understanding and then read that word back into right. the text. We need to ask different questions because that's not what Paul's meaning. Right. So let's uh, pop into Romans, lay a, lay a little bit of a foundation uh, for where Romans might take us in the coming weeks. So let's pop into the text a little bit, see what we could get through in the remaining however much time we have. So Romans 1, uh, let's go. We already Very read good. the first uh, few verses and established the yep. you know the gospel and connected to the Old Testament. So right, where, start, where else we go? Let's start in Romans 1, 16 and 17, if you want to read those. Yeah, which is, I mean, this is oftentimes identified as like, I think Doug yeah. Moo calls this like his thesis statement, uh, yeah. Paul's thesis statement of the letter. It's, it's uh, fantastic too. Yeah. It's like we we interpret the rest of the the book through this. Uh, for So Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to cover some of this in First Corinthians also. The first thing to bear in mind is that there's a cultural context, and that is the gospel is something to be ashamed of mm. because you're preaching about a crucified Jewish man who died at the hands of Rome. I mean, you should be ashamed of this. And Paul's answer is, well, what says this in First Corinthians? What you think is foolishness mm-hmm. is the power of God for the salvation for those who believe. So I'm not ashamed of it because if I were, I wouldn't tell you about it. But you need this because in believing, you can attain the power of God for for eternity. I think this cliche gets thrown around. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's like. 
Yeah, but what gospel are we talking about? Yeah. Right? Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of my power and privilege because I've obviously been blessed by God, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel of taking up my cross and following Jesus. I'm, I'm struggling with this and I've been struggling with this for a long, long time. And I think we need to wrestle with that a lot more. So yeah, hey, we've talked else. a lot about shame and honor culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would this be an appropriate time to tie the concept of shame and honor to being ashamed? Or is that not one of those, are, are these words that would not connect? That's exactly uh, what he's getting at. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what he's getting at. But. We oftentimes think of ashamed as like a personal shame that we feel. Mm -hmm. This is casting something else because it's not merely like b me being ashamed and going home and saying, okay, when I was at McDonald's today, I was too scared to pray in front of people. Like that that's oftentimes the kind of ashamed ashamedness that we feel. But this is talking about something completely different because this is connecting to society in a way in terms of like how society is going to view you. Yes. Uh, well, the implications to... of if you're praying in McDonald's, whereas in our modern context, we feel like, oh, I got, I'm so embarrassed, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah. That might be the word we might use. Whereas for Paul, you're praying in McDonald's then has, oh, this person's identifying as a Christian. And now you're not going to get hired tomorrow as a mm -hmm. day laborer. Or now people aren't going to frequent your business. Or now, hey, are you going to actually, you know, go to the Roman festival next week and give an offering before whatever, the goddess or whoever, yeah, yeah, exactly, uh -huh. whatever whoever it might be? Those are the implications of it, not just feeling personally embarrassed. Got it. Got yep. it. Uh, so that's why we should just go to In-N-Out because that is a Christian cheeseburger, right? Yeah, because it has a Bible verse on the bottom. Yes. So it's right here, people. It's right here. Exactly. Also, if In-N-Out or McDonald's would like to sponsor the Turbent Truth <laughs> podcast, please email Rob Dowell. Because yeah, if you don't, we're deleting this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so yeah. put it on our blooper reel for next year, but yeah. you are not getting airtime any other way. But if not, we will talk about In-N-Out Double Doubles every week. So I'm yeah, just saying, actually, I think yeah. In-N-Out needs to sponsor. I don't even eat food. fast food. But we will. You will but, for this. Yeah, I'll talk. Hey, Vinny, how was it? So Romans 1, 16 and 17 is not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel, which we talked about in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is about his son. Mm -hmm. And so I think the message of Romans 1, 1 through 4 is that God has been faithful through Jesus to his promises to Abraham and Israel, and that through Jesus, God has brought into this, this one family, this one community, this one entity into, into being fulfilling his promise to Abraham, and those who believe in him by faith are members of this family. Mm -hmm. And so this is what you need to believe and what you should believe because it's the gospel, and therefore I'm not going to be ashamed of it, even though you're going to heap scorn and abuse and, and economic sanctions upon me. No, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm I'm not going to be ashamed of this gospel. Yeah, and even you just mentioned faith as being key now, yeah. which is uh, that happens in verse uh, 17. So now faith becomes the new boundary marker for the people of God, not circumcision, festivals, dietary. Right. Those aren't the boundary markers. It's the faith. Right. So Romans 1, 17, and the New American Standard says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Mm -hmm. uh, the ESV says it's revealed from faith, faith for faith. For faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so CSB says faith to faith. The Net, Net Bible, Bible says faith, faith to, to faith. Uh -huh. Yeah. I think what's happening there is it's referring to the faith of Jesus and then our faith in Jesus, which okay. we see in, in Romans chapter three. So I think that's what the faith to faith is. Like, what do you mean from faith to faith? What, what, what? It's Jesus's faithfulness through which we enter into his, co into his covenant family by faith in him. And what you just said 
there's a couple phrases like this that pop up through mm-hmm. Romans and, yes. and, and many of uh, Paul's other writings where the way there's completely legitimate ways to translate some of these things. Cause oftentimes whether it's a prepositional phrase or just the way possessive phrases are rendered, it's not as clear as it might be in English. Right. Um, and so there's decisions. So something like the, the faith of Christ or Christ's faithfulness, exactly. uh, these are phrases that actually become interpretive sticking points amongst scholars now. Right. And there, there's, some actually some pretty big debates on how you put these phrases together and who it is actually referring to, right? It goes, it goes back to the conversation that we were having last week. Mm-hmm. And that is, how do we understand the book of Romans? Is this about our individual faith and our individual salvation? So if it is about our individual faith and our individual salvation, and he's writing a treatise against the legalism of, of the Jewish world in the Roman Empire, then the righteousness of God is God's righteousness that mm-hmm. he gives to us and imposes upon us. Mm-hmm. So we become righteous people because God gave his, imputed is the word, right? He imputed his righteousness to us. Or are we talking about God's covenant faithfulness? Mm-hmm. It's God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his covenant. Okay, so this issue then of righteousness for God, why is that important for you in terms of understanding something like Romans or Galatians when it talks about God's righteousness or the righteousness of God? Both those phrases mean the same thing in terms of how we translate them, but how are they interpreted? How, and how is it different than folks who might be used to hearing this preached uh, in a traditional setting? Yeah. So it goes back to kind of what I just said a little, a minute ago. So I think kind of clarifying that, and that is, is that God's righteousness that he is gives to us. That's kind of the traditional view that we've had since much of the reformation that he's imputed his righteousness Mm -hmm. to us, or is it, God's righteousness meaning something that he has done or something mm-hmm. that he does. And I think what you're finding in the Christian scholarly world today is that it's the latter of those two. The first view says that God gives salvation and that salvation is the key to understanding the book of Romans, this old Romans road approach that we've talked about a few times. The second view says, and that, that's the view that says it's God's righteousness that he gives to us. The second view that says, no, it's God's righteousness meaning something that he has done means that it refers to God's faithfulness to his promises through Jesus. Mm -hmm. And maybe a good way to illustrate this actually is to go to Psalm 98, which is interesting because it's the book of Psalms, but Psalm 98 verses 1, 2, and 3. And it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So notice there that his righteousness is used in the sense of something that he has done, not something that he has given. Mm. So if that's the case, then the phrase, the righteousness of God in the book of Romans refers to that God has been faithful to his covenant promises to Israel. And that's the big question, of course, that pervades the first three chapters of the Four, three or four chapters of the book. And that is, how can God be faithful to his promises to Israel when Israel doesn't believe? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, oh, he was faithful to his promises to Israel in and through Jesus. And we'll talk about Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3 next time. But Romans 1, all the Gentiles have been, are condemned because mm-hmm. of, of their sinfulness. But you Jews also, you had the law, Romans 2. You had the law and yet you didn't obey it. So now Romans 3, well, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how is this going to happen? And the answer is, oh, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and then our faith in him. And that's going to be a big translational question that we'll uh, that we'll address next time. 
that is the means by which God has been faithful to his covenant promises. So he mm -hmm. has been faithful to his promise to Abraham. He has brought about what he promised, the blessing on the nations and in and through Jesus. Well, I was going to say that would be important then to understand that foundation for when we get to something like a Romans 9, 10, and 11, when that, that cause that issue comes up again there, yes, as yeah, I exactly. think you alluded to earlier. Yes. And that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is. Has mm -hmm. God been faithful to his promise to Israel? Mm -hmm. And Paul's answer is, well, you wouldn't say that all Israel is not believing because I'm Jewish and I'm believing. So we'll, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's finish up with this. Michael Gorman says this. He says, for in the gospel, God's faithfulness, his saving restorative justice is revealed through Christ's faithfulness in order to generate faithfulness among those who hear it. Mm. And let me say that again. God's faithful, saving, restorative justice is revealed through Christ's faithfulness in order to generate faithfulness among those who hear it. So going backwards, we're the ones who hear it, and Christ's faithfulness generates our faithfulness in Christ. The result is God's restorative justice. He's restoring his justice and his kingdom through Christ. And therefore God has been faithful, or as Paul would say, God is righteous. Mm. Okay. Yeah. We should get Mike Gorman on. He sounds like a really yeah. smart guy. Why don't we do that for our next episode? Like next, next week, week, let's have him on. Can you make okay. that happen for next week? I, next week we'll have Michael Gorman. You you promise this? Lord Done. willing? Done. Done. <laughs> I, you can double dog dare me. I'm going to do it anyways. Cool. Yeah. Well, hey, fun times talking about Romans, talking about it in a very different way than we might have uh, heard it before. So hopefully this is stimulating you and uh, hopefully you've read through it a couple yeah. times this week. You can, it's 16 chapters. You could do it. You so can do it. You can do it. You're good enough. You're smart enough and doggone it. People like you. <laughs> hey everyone. Hope you're enjoying it. We'll catch you guys next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.